Good evening, everyone. I'm Matt Pinson. I'm chairman of the Commission for Theological Integrity and president of Welch College. And it's my privilege to welcome you to this annual theological symposium sponsored by the Commission for Theological Integrity of the National Association of Free Will Baptists. And uh, we're recording these sessions. I think uh, Facebook is down and so we weren't able to do our live stream, but we will be recording these sessions so that people can watch them um, remotely. It is good to be here. We've been doing this for about 25 years, and it's been a wonderful experience. And uh, we're so happy to be back, and we've got a great slate of papers. We want to encourage you to uh, get one of the symposium-bound uh, papers. Uh, these are $10.00. If you are presenting, you get a free one. You don't have to pay. But if you're not, they're $10, uh, and, and that way you can follow along uh, when the presenters read their papers. Also, I encourage you to go out and uh, you can purchase old copies, of hard copies of Integrity, our Journal of Christian Thought, for $5 a piece if you want some hard copies of those. And also encourage you to sign the sign-up sheet so we have a record of your attendance and we have your contact information. It's so good to have Dr. Robert Piccarelli with us. And I would love for Dr. Piccarelli to stand and pray a prayer uh, of a blessing over this symposium. We should have a number of people who are en route from far distances, and so they're going to be arriving soon. Uh, let me ask, how many of you have driven or flown at least 500 miles to be here? Would you raise your hand? Okay, we've got two. And one is Brother Corey Thompson, who's our newest commissioner. Would you stand, Brother Corey, so they can see you? This is our newest commissioner, Brother Corey Thompson. Let's welcome him. But then we also have... Mr. Jerry Nunes, who is all the way from New Jersey and uh, works in Manhattan and ministers in Yonkers, New York. And so that's a little bit more than 500 miles away. So we've got some other people who are going to be coming from Oklahoma to join us. And so we've got quite a crowd here of uh, diverse uh, groups of people. And so we're so glad to have you with us. At this time, I'm going to ask our program chairman, Dr. Jackson Watts, to come and open us up. Dr. Watts. Well, again, let me say welcome to our event this evening. I want to say thank you to Welch College for being so kind to host this event. They've hosted it many times through the years, 
and we appreciate the support that their staff uh, and uh, personnel have provided for us. In addition to this uh, nice meeting place and some of the technical support, they have some refreshments in here to uh, my left, your right, and so feel free to slip in there between sessions and uh, enjoy something that they provided. Uh, thank you again, Welch College. October the 25th through the 26th will mark 26 years since the Commission for Theological Integrity sponsored a symposium on the campus of what was then Free Will Baptist Bible College. Thirteen papers were read on different theological subjects. As Contact Magazine reported at that time, the event was received well and a decision was made to continue these events. So depending on how you count things, this could be the 25th anniversary of us holding such an event in an official capacity. Certainly given all the changes and reformatting of events in 2020, one might easily say that this is best seen as the 25th. Regardless of the number, no other Free Will Baptist institution has an event quite like this. In just a little over 24 hours, we dive deep into all things theological. As we've repeatedly said through the years, theology isn't a technical academic exercise. It's a task that every Christian is implicated in the moment that they think about what they read in Scripture, and especially how that should be interpreted and applied in the world and in the church. That broader, truer vision of theology can be clearly seen if you look carefully at the convention seminars that we offer, the papers we publish in Integrity, the blog posts that appear at fwbtheology.com, and especially the papers presented each year at this event. In addition to the range of subjects, we continue to see a range of different presenters. We have graduate students, youth pastors, lead pastors, and executive pastors. We have college professors, denominational officials, and independent scholars of various kinds. Indeed, we welcome Free Will Baptists of all vocations and educational backgrounds to join us as we probe God's truth and its intersection with all reality. Finally, we're gratified to see a range of attendees at this event. While it's not the most attended event that Free Will Baptists have, we perhaps touch as wide a range of individuals as most others. The live stream in recent years has contributed greatly to that. But we regularly see attendees from many states and even some missionaries when they're stateside. We trust that this year is no exception to any of those patterns and trends. Again, we welcome you and invite you to engage with us during the discussion times and even to submit questions and comments through social media uh, as that may be available at different times. So again, thank you for being here and thank you for valuing this time. I'm going to ask our chairman to come back at this time to introduce our first presenter. And as others have come in, come on in and make yourself at home. Find yourself a seat and again, be our guest this year. Thank you, Dr. Watts. It's a privilege to introduce our first speaker for this evening, uh, Mr. Daniel Webster. He's going to be speaking on Clement's use of music in exhortation to the Greeks as a model for cultural engagement. Uh, Mr. Webster is doing a Ph.D. in church music and worship studies at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And this is a revision of a paper that he wrote for that program. And uh, he is uh, very interested in the intersection of uh, liturgiology and music 
with uh, church history, especially the patristic era. Uh, Mr. Webster is a minister. He's a Free Will Baptist ordained minister. He's also been a music minister. He's currently minister of music on a part-time volunteer basis at Emmanuel Free Will Baptist Church right here in Gallatin. He served for 10 years in uh, a position as full-time minister of music at Gateway Free Will Baptist Church in Virginia Beach, Virginia. And then after a pastorate in North Carolina, he came on board as the uh, director of enrollment services and adjunct instructor here at Welch College. One of the things that is interesting about Daniel is that he is a man of many talents. He's the person who does all of our AV and uh, 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 technological stuff for the symposium each time it's held at Welch. So that's just one example of the things he does. He's also involved in community theater and has even done some drama for us here at Welch College. He has a lot of classes in Hebrew and in the Old Testament, probably more than anyone here at Welch other than Dr. Matthew McAfee. So that's another little interesting fact about Daniel Webster. And yet, uh, first and foremost, he's he's, he's very interested in the intersection of theology, as Dr. Watts has framed it, and Dr. Pickerelli in his prayer, as just what we do when we reflect on Scripture and what it means for our lives and for how we minister the gospel to people. He's very interested in how life and theology intersect and how life and ministry intersect. He has a bachelor's degree from Gateway. He has two master's degrees, one in church music and one in Bible from Maranatha Baptist Seminary and also a master's degree in biblical studies from Virginia Beach Theological Seminary. And let's welcome, and he's got a great family too, Kimberly and three wonderful youngers. Let's welcome him to the podium. I'll be reading Clement's use of music and exhortation to the Greeks as a model for cultural engagement. The Latin father, Tertullian, who opposed the use of Greek philosophy, famously asked, what indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? This question was in opposition to theologians of his day, such as Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, and Origen of Alexandria, who argued that the ancient Greek writings were not inherently good or bad. References to ancient Greek philosophy permeate Clement's writing, and even his choice of literary form for the exhortation to the Greeks is common in ancient Greek culture. Patrepticus, or exhortation, is an established Greek genre used by Plato Isocrates and Aristotle, as well as other philosophers who predate Clement by 500 years. Like the ancient philosophers, Clement seeks to convince his reader of a better way of life. In doing so, he confronts Greek mythology and paganism, and he adamantly argues that following the Christ of Scripture is superior. Clement can be complicated at times. Some conservative thinkers are skeptical due to his allegorical interpretation of Scripture. While it may be the case that Clement's views are at times skewed by his hermeneutic, or at least in our time we view them as skewed, Gonzalez helpfully points out that Clement never doubts that the Scriptures are inspired by God, and he says once and again that the Scriptures do have a literal historical sense. While care should be taken when reading Clement, 
There's much to be gained by seeking to understand this father who wrote just a hundred years after the last apostle. As it pertains to music, Clement's writings abound with a multiplicity of musical references. Not only does he give insight as to what church music might have been like in the second century, he also displays a model for how believers might use the arts for the glory of God. But again, Clement's use of musical metaphors is perplexing. To help clarify, scholars have sought to categorize his numerous references to music as either figurative or literal. But as Cosgrove observes, some of Clement's ostensibly metaphorical uses of musical language are not purely figurative. He continues, it would be a mistake to insist that on the continuum from literal to metaphorical, all the musical language must reside at the same point. The goal of this paper is to examine Clement's references to music in his exhortation to better understand Clement's model for transforming culture by pursuing the art of music, while at the same time observing his use of musical metaphor to engage the philosophies of Greek culture. With a backdrop of the early church's view of music, this paper will observe Clement's use of music in the exhortation to the Greeks to illustrate a Christ-first apologetic and a Christ-centered telos. Clement's Context, Music of the Second and Third Century Church. Clement's references to music in his exhortation are numerous. His apparent appreciation for and deep understanding of music may seem contrary to the caricature that early believers were unnecessarily stringent. When it comes to music, this caricature is not completely inaccurate. As will be shown later in this paper, the writers of this period unanimously reject association with pagan music, and there seems to be a consensus that instruments should not be used in worship. Why then would Clement spend his time pursuing music? This section will observe the Antonicene Church's use of music on the Lord's Day and their opposition to pagan music to set a context for understanding Clement's use of music in the exhortation. Music in the Antonicene Church. Outside of scripture, not much is said in the writings of the church fathers about music in general, and even less about music within the gathered assembly. Justin Martyr's writings give us the earliest clue, other than scripture. In fact, concerning the details of an actual worship service, Justin provides more than the New Testament text. The congregations that Justin associated with did, as one would expect, sing on the Lord's Day. He states in his first apology that they offer thanks by invocations and hymns. Elsewhere in his first apology, he provides a thorough description of a Lord's Day meeting. In this very lengthy description, Justin describes a service that consists of preaching, teaching, praying, reading scripture publicly, partaking of the Lord's table, saying amen, and collecting an offering. This service results in the deacons carrying out service during the week. That Justin did not explicitly mention music in his description may be troubling to some, but the reader should keep in mind that the earliest believers closely associated singing with scripture reading. Having a concert-like environment would not have been commonplace among the earliest believers. 
The table and the word were the central focus. The chant-like a cappella singing was a servant to the reading of the word. To understand how this could be, we must examine the form of music during this time. Modern music seeks to conform the words of a song to the music, while the music of the early church likely conformed the music to the natural rhythm and inflection of the text. Thus, you have something that's chant-like. Historians and musicologists have suggested that ancient music, which would have been something like what the early church used, was simple in form. It was likely monophonic, unaccompanied by instruments and without harmony, and chant-like or recitative. As Dickinson has observed, this is the most restricted of all melodic forms. Dickinson describes the song of the early church. The tones are made to conform to the meter and accent of the text, the words of which are never repeated or prosodically modified. Not only was the form of music for Lord's Day worship restricted, to use Dickinson's word, the words used in worship gatherings were also likely restricted. It is most probable that the pre-Nicene believers of Clement's Day still followed the apostles' pattern of using music as a didactic tool to teach and admonish uh, as they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Paul commanded that content for gathered meetings be intelligible and conducted in an orderly manner. There were many texts available to the Christians, yet they likely limited the content of their psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to the word of Christ. Second century opposition to pagan music. The moral stringency, as Sapert has called it, may have been the case with church music, but it was not always the case in every area of life. As the second century epistle to Diognetus explains, the early believers followed the local customs, both in clothing and food and in the rest of life. As this epistle goes on to explain, Christians were present and active within the daily activities of their communities. But in doing so, they were careful to abstain from the practices and philosophies that accompanied aspects of pagan culture that were blatantly sinful. The Christians were, to quote that epistle, the epistle to Dionysus, in the flesh, but not living after the flesh. This is important because it indicates that believers were not being overly stringent in every area of culture and our action. The extant writings provide just a few references that shed light on the church's response to pagan music before the time of Tertullian and Clement. Tatian, the Assyrian, a student of Justin Martyr, ridicules Greek music that has a number of singers. He wished not to be in the presence of a pantomime when he is winking and gesticulating in an unnatural manner. Tatian also refers, uh, references Christians, uh, Christian maidens at their distaffs, who sing of divine things. This is significant because it gives a clue about the church's use of music outside of Sunday gatherings. Well, Tadian would have uh, them avoid sexualized musical context, like that of the pantomime. He commends the Christian women that would sing of godly things while spinning their wool. The scarce historical record also indicates a very early Christian polemic against the Greeks claimed to have invented music. Theophilus of Antioch argued that music did not originate 
originate with Orpheus, as the Greeks claimed, but rather it originated with Jubal in Genesis. These earliest references indicate that some Christians were agitated by certain musical contexts in pagan culture and some of their claims about music. By Clement's time, a formal opposition to pagan music was in full swing. Clement spoke of those who, after paying homage to the word of God, and in the context he's talking about at church, after paying homage to the word of God at church, they leave inside what they have heard. Once outside, they roam about with the ungodly, taking their fill of erotic pieces played on or sung to the accompaniment of the lyre, dancing and drinking and trifling in every way. Those who now sing and join in the refrains of such uh, pieces are the same men who but a while before were chanting the praises of immortality. And now they impiously intone that monotonous refrain to the end, let us eat and drink. For tomorrow we die. Tertullian viewed the spectacles of the theater and the circus as directly connected to idolatry and bad morals. Novation suggested the pagan music would still be worthless, even if it were not morally corrupt. And the Didascalia Apostolorum, uh, portions of which date to around the 2nd or 3rd century, urges Christians to seek only the scriptures for their history, wisdom, poetry, songs, and law. If the rejection of pagan music was a widespread opinion among the Antonicene writers, and the practice of the early Christians was to use the simplest form known, monophonic, for Lord's Day worship, then what would be the value of Clement's pursuit of music beyond its use in gathered worship? Cyprian of Carthage, who lived at the same time and in the same city as Tertullian, oddly enough, gives a view of music that is representative of Clement's approach. God gave man a voice, yet amorous and indecent songs ought not to be sung. God wished iron to be used in the cultivation of the earth, not in the commission of murder. And because the Lord provided incense, wine, and fire, one must not, therefore, sacrifice to idols. While music, like iron for murder and fire for idol worship, may still be used for evil. It also has redeemable qualities to be used for the good of all people and the glory of God. Clement understood this. Let's look at his philosophy of transforming culture through music. As indicated by the title of this paper, exhortation presents a model for transforming culture through music. But it does not give us Clement's philosophy for transforming culture. For this section, we'll turn to Clement's philosophy of transforming culture presented in the Stramata to better understand his model for engaging culture through music. Clement's view that the whole life is a holy festival. One important aspect of Clement's philosophy of transforming culture through the art of music is his view that all of life should be brought under the lordship of Christ. For Clement, the whole life is a holy festival. This approach leads Clement to find purpose in things that are considered by many to be non-spiritual or secular. We cultivate our fields praising. We sail the seas hymning. And all the rest of our conversa conversation, we conduct ourselves according to rule. This musical reference to hymning while sailing at sea may be a literal reference 
like Tatian's reference to Christian maidens who sing of divine things while spinning. This reference may also be a metaphor for the song that is sounded when a life is controlled by Christ, whom Clement calls the new song. More on this later. Whether this reference to hymning is literal or figurative, Clement viewed music as a noble thing to, to be pursued as a means of giving glory to God. And he saw it as something worthy of pursuit throughout daily life. Clement also equates the work of the Spirit with music. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he arranged in harmonious order this great world, yes, and the little world of man too, body and soul together. And on this many-voiced instrument of the universe, he makes music to God and sings to the human instrument. When the Spirit's work is accomplished in the daily life of the believer, it is the tune of the new song emanating through his life. Clement's advice to collect teaching aids from the Greeks. Another aspect of Clement's philosophy is his use of music to relate to the Greeks. In a chapter of the Stramata entitled, The Mystical Meanings and the Proportions of Numbers, Geometric Ratios, and Music, he tells believers to collect what is useful for the advantage of the catechumens, and especially when they are Greeks, and the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof must not abstain from erudition like irrational animals, but he must collect as many aids as possible for his hearers. But he must by no means linger over these studies, except solely for the advantage accruing from them, so that on grasping and obtaining this, he may be able to take his departure home to the true philosophy. And I had to cut that quote down quite a bit to save room, but that was directly in his context of music, teaching on music. As long as the believer maintains his focus while collecting from the great amount of knowledge available to him, then the endeavor for more knowledge is a noble thing. This endeavor is especially worthwhile if it results in the collection of learning aids for new followers of Christ. Clement's commendation of pursuing Greek thought appears to be backed by the understanding that this knowledge was not original to the Greeks. Quoting the psalmist and saying, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, indicates that Clement would have agreed with Augustine, who two centuries later proposed that all truth is God's truth when he said, Nay, but let every good and true Christian understand that wherever truth may be found, it belongs to his master. What is learned among the Greeks should be taken home to true philosophy. This seems to be a reference to a worldview that is informed by and reflective of God's truth, truth that is found in Christ and the scriptures. Later, Clement refers to true philosophy on whom the scripture enjoins examination and investigation. According to Clement, the Christian is free to cull truth from among Greek philosophy and light of scripture, which is a strong cable for the soul, providing security from everything. Clement's counsel to embrace appropriate music and reject superfluous music. After this commendation of seeking knowledge, Clement continues with a word about the proper use of music, astronomy, and philosophy. For this study, only his portion on music will be examined. Music is then to be handled for the sake of the embellishment and composure of manners. For instance, at a banquet, we pledge each other 
while the music is playing, soothing by song the eagerness of our desires and glorifying God for the copious gift of human enjoyments, for his perpetual supply of the food necessary for the growth of the body and soul. But we must reject superfluous music, which invenerates men's souls and leads to variety, now mournful and then licentious and voluptuous and then frenzied and frantic. It's quite a description. He suggests that music has a place in the life of the believer, while also acknowledging its capacity for evil. The place of music commended here is the use of music to order the manners and attitude of the entire person for the glory of God. Just as one should seek knowledge while running back home to the true philosophy, so should the believer seek out the best music that aids in glorifying God while rejecting superfluous music which invenerates men's souls. Clement provides a fitting illustration from Matthew 13 for this way of choosing the best. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who cast a net into the sea and out of the multitude of the fishes caught makes a selection of the better ones. Clement's philosophy of engaging culture through music can be summarized in this way. All of life should be to the glory of God and everything in this life belongs to God, including music. Thus, for the believer, engaging in music to glorify God, relate to neighbor, attain, uh, attain knowledge, and order life is permissible. But the believer should be careful not to partake in music that leads to fleshly desires and should always retreat to the scriptures as the final authority. With this philosophy in mind, this paper will now turn to Clement's use of music and exhortation as a model for cultural engagement. Clement's use of music to illustrate a Christ-first apologetic. Clement's Christ-first apologetic in the exhortation is an important aspect of his engagement of culture. This is seen as he presents the hopeless state of the Greeks and the hope that can be found in the new song. Woven throughout this apologetic is an appreciation for and deep understanding of music. Clement communicates the hopeless state of the Greeks. In the opening paragraph, the reader is introduced to three ancient Greek figures, Amphion of Thebes, Arion of Methymna, and Orpheus the Thracian. Although Clement uses these Greek figures to draw the reader in, he's actually appropriating these literary figures to point out the foolishness of believing the perspective they promote. According to Greek mythology, Amphion used music to move stones in order to build protective walls. Arion played his kithara and sang to tame dolphins for his rescue. And Orpheus, the greatest of all Greek musicians, used his lyre to charm all sorts of animals, trees, and even rocks into a dance. Clement points out that Greeks who believe these musical myths were themselves deceived because these false teachers were influenced by demons through some artful sorcery to compass men's ruin and lead men by the hand to idolatry. Amphion, Arion, and Orpheus, the reader should keep in mind that these are exaggerated or fabricated figures, did not just control animals, trees, and stones. They controlled real people who were and are deceived by these fables. Clement is telling his audience, you have believed a lie. 
After using Greek myth to convince the readers of their hopeless state of deception, he introduces them to truth. Clement presents Christ as the new song. Clement's first reference to Christ in the second paragraph of exhortation is an introduction to truth, who stands in contrast to the deceit of the first three Greek figures. How in the world is it that you have given credence to worthless legends, imagining brute beasts to be enchanted by music, while the bright face of truth seems alone to strike you as deceptive and is regarded with unbelieving eyes? Clement has many names for Christ, but his favorite title is the New Song, a title which he claims to have coined for himself. The New Song is subtly introduced in the opening paragraphs through a fourth Greek musician. While the Greek figures Amphion, Arion, and Orpheus were busy deceiving with their music, Unimus, the Locrian, was being led away by a New Song. One day, while Unimus was attempting to provide music for an event, he broke a string on his kithra, leaving him unable to finish the song. To his surprise, a cicada, which he had observed earlier in the day singing to God all wise, leaped onto the neck of the kithra and chirped along, enabling Unimus to finish the song. Mind you, this is a Greek fable. The cicada is a common trope in Greek literature having a variety of associations ranging from divinity to sexuality. In this context, the life-giving nature, which can be seen in both divinity and sexuality, of this cicada may be what Clement has in mind. Clement does not tell this story as it was often told in Greek literature. Unimus is usually the hero who charmed the cicada, but in Clement's version, Unimus was in a desperate situation and need of help from the cicada who knew the new song. Clement exploits the fable to convince the Greek reader to avoid being led away and deceived by minstrels of idolatry. Like Unimus, the reader is exhorted to join the chorus of this cicada in singing a new song to God all-wise, to be delivered from the hopeless situation. Clement exclaims, See how mighty is the new song. It has made men out of stones and men out of wild beasts. They who were otherwise dead, who had no share in the real and true life, revived when they heard, but when they but heard the song. As Stapert has interpreted, the new song is Christ, the word of God. He is the truth, the true Orpheus, who alone can tame the human beast, soften human hearts that are harder than stone, and bring them to life. Clement continues to elaborate on the new song imagery. He teaches that the new song composed the entire creation into melodious order and tuned into concert the discord of the elements and the whole universe, that the whole universe might be in harmony with it. A structured universe being compared to music was common in Greek philosophy. This was known as musica universalis, or universal music, or the music of the spheres, and was postulated by philosophers such as Pythagoras and Aristotle. The new song arranged in harmonious order this great world, yes, and the little world of man too, body and soul together. And on this many-voice instrument of the universe, he makes music to God. 
The creator and tuner of the universe is the only one who can bring harmony to the souls of his creatures. With his references to Greek philosophy, Clement is not attempting to be like the Greeks, to be accepted by the Greeks. Rather, he seeks to meet the Greeks where they are and then bring them over to the knowledge of the new song. Let's skip to the next section. Clement's use of music to illustrate a Christ-centered telos. Clement not only uses music to illustrate a Christ-first apologetic, but he also uses music to illustrate a Christ-centered telos. The Greco-Roman mystery cults did not offer hope in this life or the next. Clement uses musical imagery, imagery to illustrate that mankind's telos, his ultimate end or purpose, is in Christ. Clement offers Christ using musical imagery. Using musical imagery, Clement offers a talos in Christ as an alternative to the Greco-Roman mystery cults. Superstition surrounding the separation of the soul from the body at the time of death abounded, along with the Hellenistic version of reincarnation. Theories about the afterlife were usually grim and hopeless. Humankind's only hope for reward after death involved pleasing the gods through pious actions and initiation in the secretive rites of the mystery religions. Clement knew of this hopeless uncertainty. And with the persuasiveness of an apologist, he offers a telos for humankind that is fulfilled in this life and the next. Bound to the wood of the cross, thou shalt live freed from all corruption. The word of God shall be thy pilot, and the Holy Spirit shall bring thee to anchor in the harbors of heaven. Then thou shalt have the vision of my God, and shalt be initiated in these holy mysteries. For Clement to invite the Greek reader to have the vision of my God, and shalt be initiated to the holy mysteries, was no mistake. Clement is yet again appropriating Greek philosophy. This time, he exploits the mystery religions. It should be understood that Clement is not looking for relevance, seeking status among the Greeks, or craving acceptance. In fact, he devoted an entire chapter of the exhortation to calling out the futility and wickedness of the mystery religions. His goal is to, and I quote, thoroughly lay bare in accordance with the principle of truth the trickery they conceal. And as for your so-called gods themselves to whom the mystic rites belong, I will display them on the stage of life, as it were, for the spectators of truth. To drive home the glories of being initiated into the mystery of Christ's church, Clement employs, you guessed it, musical imagery to describe the congregation of God on his holy mountain. You can notice the italics below. The righteous form this company, and their song is a hymn and praise of the God of all. The maidens play the harp, angels give glory, prophets speak, and noise of music rises. These are the revels of my mysteries. If thou wilt be thyself also initiated, and thou shalt dance with the angels around the unbegotten and imperishable and only true God, the word of God, joining with us in our hymn of praise. Cosgrove observes, none of this is meant literally, literally, but the description of participation in angelic heavenly song may be something in a realistic sense. 
akin to uh, Aristides and Philo's understanding of the soul's access to heavenly music through initiation into heavenly mysteries. In this passage, Clement is gushing forth appropriated religious metaphors and a multitude of musical imagery as he pleads with those who speak his native tongue. The telos Clement offers is significantly more attractive than what the Greeks have to offer. A person is complete when he or she is on the mountain of God with the choir of the righteous, raising a hymn of praise to the unbegotten and imperishable and only true God. Clement affirms the church using musical imagery. Clement does not just invite the Greeks to be initiated into Christ. He also uses musical imagery to offer a Christ-centered telos of the individual in the context of the church. Clement says this of the righteous. A beautiful hymn to God is an immortal man who is being built up in righteousness and upon whom the oracles of truth have been engraved. The opposite might be said of the unrighteous. He is a noisy aggravation to God. The telos presented in this verse, illustrated through music, points to the individual's standing with God. But Clement also saw a telos in a right relationship of an individual within the collective body, and he uses music to make this point. Let us hasten to salvation, to the new birth. Let us, who are many, hasten to be gathered together into one love, in the union of many into one. Bringing a divine harmony out of many scattered sounds becomes one symphony, following one leader and teacher, the word, and never ceasing till it reaches the truth itself with the cry, Abba, Father. Clement envisions Christ's church as a symphonia, just as the New Testament authors compared the church to a human body, a bride, a family, a house, and a temple. So Clement pictures the church as a group of instruments carrying on the anthem of the prophets and apostles under the direction of the great conductor. With this musical metaphor, the ecclesiastical symphony, Clement attempts to illustrate the glory of God that resounds from the people of God when the church comes together in unity. The goal of this paper has been to examine Clement's references to music in his exhortation to better understand his model for transforming culture by pursuing the art of music, while at the same time observing his use of musical metaphor to engage the philosophies of Greek culture. With the backdrop of the early church's view of music, we have observed Clement's use of music in the exhortation to the Greeks to illustrate a Christ-first apologetic and a Christ-centered telos. But Clement's purpose must not be misunderstood. He did not use these cultural elements to gain popularity and acceptance. In fact, his criticism of Greek religion would have led to the opposite result. Even though the church in that day employed only the simplest forms of music known for Lord's Day worship, Clement pursued the depths of the art of music because he recognized that God is the creator of music and thus it is a worthy endeavor for the good of all people and the glory of God. Seeking the arts for acceptance by God and seeking the arts for acceptance by others may actually look the same at times. But these are two very different motivations. The apostles call upon Christians to do all to the glory of God. 
Clement echoed this call to the believers of his day when he challenged them to hold festival then in our whole life, persuaded that God is altogether on every side present. All of life should be to the glory of God, and everything in this life belongs to God, including music. For the believer today, engaging in music to glorify God, relate to neighbor, edify the church, attain knowledge, and order life is a good and noble pursuit in the context of cultures that reject God's rule and reign. Questions? We have about 20 minutes for questions or comments. So, uh, Brother Daniel, if you'll stay up here, and if you have any questions or comments, we have plenty of time. Questions, comments, snide remarks, Mr. Bracey. No snide remarks here. If Clement were to observe the contemporary church's use of music, or the contemporary Christians' interaction with music, whether inside or outside of the church house. What would he say? Um, I suppose he probably would be as confused with us today as we are with the second century context. Um, the truth is, is that um, even even my statement uh, there, I would I would edit that at the very beginning of um, when I spoke of Clement's hermeneutic, because I, I do think that's unfair to say about a uh, someone 1900 years ago. What would he say? Um, you know, I, I suppose uh, th- there are different pockets of um, the church. We're very diverse. Um, I think he would love my engagement of music and my use of music, of course. <laughs> and everyone would agree that he would love theirs. Um, I think there are certainly areas that he would be a bit, um, a bit uh, startled to see for sure, um, and and I think it would be definitely more than just, you know, nineteen hundred years later and a cultural difference. I, I think he would, he would be bothered by by many of our, uh, our, our ways. Um, I mean, just right down to our use of instruments. So, I mean, the reality is, is that he would have a problem with most of our church music just because of our use of instruments. And he'd probably have a problem with all of our music programs at church. Uh, so there's that. Um, but then obviously I think there are, there are issues among the church that, that might would make Clement blush. Did I dodge your question appropriately? <laughs> sort of cultural 
appropriation and use of music and how it's interacting with our cultural context, and then what we're doing relative to the assembly, the Christian assembly, it's almost like you have that kind of dynamic in all of these discussions, any of these figures who took up these subjects, such as Clement. Is that a fair reading of church history from your perspective? Yeah, I think so. And I and to your triad, I think I'd go with an intersection. I if, if I expand it and, and change the title of this, I think I'd call it uh, Clement at the Intersection of Culture and Cultists. Uh, and so you, you, he, he definitely has much to say about culture and arts within the context of culture. And he even uses music to engage culture. But he also has much to say about, about the music of the church. Uh, well, he, the truth is, is he doesn't have near as much about the music in the actual assembly as others do. Um, and so, so yeah, it, it, it would, we have to consider church music in the context or at the intersection of, of culture as well. And, um, and so, so you, you see Clement definitely at the intersection of, of the culture of his day, um, both um, Greek culture, uh, and for him, also ancient Greek culture. Um, so not just, uh, in fact, the Hellenistic culture of his day kind of got on his nerves and, and he really appreciated the, the, the Greek culture of, of 500 years before. Um, but he, he's a man of his times and, he's, and he's, he, he doesn't have his head in the sand and he is certainly uh, making decisions and teaching the church in the context of, of his culture while trying to engage it and, and, um, and make a difference. I mean, just the very fact that he wrote an exhortation to Greeks, um, I mean, that's evangelistic. He is seeking to change the minds of, of his neighbors. I uh, deeply desire that. And so, so yeah, our, our church music and, and, and what we do on the Lord's Day, um, we ought to seek the scriptures uh, for what to do. But we also understand that it's in the context of everything around us. Um, and so it takes wisdom and discernment. And um, so, again, I, I don't know if I completely answered your question, but, but maybe followed up on what you're saying. Anyone else? Uh, let me express what I take from the paper as well as the questions and comments and then give you the opportunity to suggest whether I've missed something. It seems to me like most of what you have described here and the quotations from him, he is, as you yourself said, using music as an analogy or a metaphor. Uh, so that, for instance, he's, he's saying something like, uh, your life can be a symphony, which doesn't say whether symphony music in the orchestra hall is good or bad. But it is using the symphony, and of course he probably wouldn't use it if he didn't have some respect for it, obviously, as again you also indicate. But, to, but for him to answer the question about music within the worship service, that's a different matter altogether. And it seems to me like the only thing I remember you were referring to that would speak to that would be when he talks about, or was it some other person you were quoting, talking about music which provokes uh, 
sexual desire, licentiousness, uh, rioting, or whatever else may come at it. it and, and that is as much, even in the quotations, I think, if I remember correctly, about the music you use in your daily life as it is about the music you use in the worship service. So it just doesn't seem to me there's much here about music in the worship service itself. No, you're, you're, you're exactly right. The Clement of all of the uh, late second, early third century writers that we have, and even, even I'd say second and third centuries, he has the most on the topic of music, but very little of it is Lord's Day music. And so, so you're, you're exactly right. But of course, the itching question is, if, if, if there's no instruments in church, in, in, the, in the assembly, and they're singing the most simple form, just a chant-like recitative that's very closely associated with their, with their, uh, with the reading of scripture. Then why would Clement, outside of the church, even bother with music? And the reality is, is that even though he had a a stringent um, policy with within the Lord's Day worship, which you might could argue would have been could have been a reaction from various cultural phenomena around him, but why would he then pursue music to such great heights and depths? And um, the truth is that he still saw it as a as a worthy pursuit um, and something to be brought under the lordship of Christ. Daniel, I know you've thought a lot about visual art as well and studied a lot about it. Do you think that there's a, a parallel between Clement's understanding of music and the church being having one function being very simple, whereas he could appreciate other forms of music outside of the church that he did not think were appropriate for worship? It, 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 for First of all, is that true? And second of all... Is there a parallel between like someone who believes in not using uh, uh, icon, who, who's iconoclastic or who is not iconographic at, within the worship context and yet who is a sculptor and a painter uh, out in his everyday job and is creative in a way that he does not think is appropriate for Christian Worship. So two questions there. Yeah, I, I, I would be hesitant to draw a straight line from Clement, although he does have, uh, he, he does have some words on images, uh, visual images. I, I, it's been a while since I've looked at it. Um, and whether he was specifically talking about in the church or outside of the church or, or, or both. But, um, so I would, I would, I would be slow to draw a straight line from Clement and to say what he believed on that. But I, I do think is at least an interesting parallel that, that, we, that, that we do have limitations, and even in our own practice, of things that we might would do outside of the church that we wouldn't do within the church. I mean, uh, m- most believers, um, although some would draw the line at a different place, do have some, some line that they draw. Um, so, but but I, I would be afraid to to speak for Clement on that. But but I think it's I think it again is a is a good illustration, and it's obviously 
um, something that the early church wrestled with. So, Clement and Plato, or Platonic theory, um, the, the, the second and third century fathers tend to seem inconsistent when it comes to the topic of music. And that's just, that's where we're left. Um, again, uh, uh, Stapert calls it uh, a moral stringency. Um, they, they weren't unnecessarily stringent in other areas, but it does seem to be that, that, they're, that they are in this area. Um, and, uh, and of course, again, who am I to say that? You know, so, you know, we stand on their shoulders. They're not standing on ours. Um, but, it, but it is something that we have to wrestle with. The, the, why did they make these decisions in, in music? In, ter in terms of, in the context of, of the other Greek philosophers, um, <laughs> Clement, Clement is trying to, to synthesize really the wealth of music references in the Old Testament with the philosophers. Um, and, and sometimes he, he could be a bit inconsistent at times. Um, there, there, was, there is one time where he just kind of throws his arms up and concedes and basically says, who am I to say uh, you shouldn't play a stringed instrument? I mean, David did, you know. Um, and of course, he actually tries to to um, to suggest that those references in the Psalms are allegorical. So yeah, he he was kind of a man between two worlds with with Greek philosophy. Um, he was uh, as far as uh, Plato's writings, he would have been most influenced by Plato, um, and and yet he's wrestling with. With, with the Hebrew scriptures at the same time. Um, in, in terms of, of structure and balance, as, as the Greek philosophers had suggested, uh, you see that with his talk of the music of the spheres. Um, he sees the, the universe as being um, uh, ordered by music, and whether that is him speaking metaphorically or whether he really actually believed that music sounded out of the universes, we're, we're not quite sure what, what Clement would have believed because the Greek philosophers would have held to that. Um, and so, and in terms of his interaction with, with, uh, uh, 
with the Jewish community. Uh, Clement is actually a little, is, is a few degrees removed from the Jewish community, being that he's in Alexandria. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm in the midst of writing a paper on his use of Jerusalem and some of the temple imagery. Um, but actually, compared to some of the other early church fathers, he's, he's not near as entrenched in Jewish thought as many of the others. Um, and, and, and he seems to be much more entrenched in Greek thought. Um, and so I'm, I'm really kind of trying to scrape together all of his apparently Jewish thinking to kind of pull that together into a, into a, a paper. Um, and so to, to answer your question, uh, I, don't, I, I don't remember your exact question. Uh, but, I, but you did ask me to comment on... on yeah, it was just about Alekin's overall thesis that most of the music in the early church stemmed out of that sort of festal commemoration from the Greek side, which in part seems like what, what um, Clement is arguing against yes. with the use of the music and, and the types of music that were played, because he does allow for some, some types of music. Uh, and then, of course, there are references throughout to uh, uh, throughout the early church to the Therapeutae uh, and the Qumran community and their singing of after a meal. So, yes, and, 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 I, and I would say that, that is, I would agree with that suggestion that the, the, new, the earliest believers were definitely living in the shadow of the temple. Um, and even their, their liturgy would have been heavily influenced by what, what the earliest Christians did with Christ and the apostles. Um, and, and so, but when it comes to Clement, there, there really is a bit of silence on just that Jewish connection, that, that it's, it's just not as much present in Clement's writing as others. What else? Time to stop? Well, if I don't see any more hands, we'll close it down. Good. What would, um, what would Clement's model for cultural engagement in the case of music look like today? Like, how would you see that play out in our context today in, in the life of a local church or in the life of an individual believer using music or other arts as a Christ-first apologetic or a crisis to us? I think, I think Clement would be aware and knowledgeable of the music of his day. I, I believe he, he was in his day. Um, and, and these myths and, and fables that he is appropriating and bringing up, um, again, and, and I guess we're among friends and the internet, um, there's, there's, there's kind of a sense in, as, as those of us who are attempting to have an impact and to transform the culture around us, you know, sometimes I think we err on the side of just trying to be too cool and be accepted. And, and I, I think that that's a dangerous approach. I think that what Clement was doing, um, you know, in one chapter, he's he's uh, calling out the Greek mystery religions, which would have um, made folks very upset at him. And on the other hand, he's appropriating these these fables. 
um, and showing his knowledge of, of Greek mythology and, and the literature of his day. And so I, I think there is some wisdom in his teaching to call the best out and even adapt teaching aids for the use of new believers. And he even said, especially if they're Greek and getting sucked into it. Um, and so I don't, I don't think that, that you have to have a knowledge of pop culture to reach the world around you. You know, I, um, I, I don't think that, that there is, well, if you're going to reach people for Christ, you, you got to know every pop culture reference. I, I don't believe that's the case. But at the same time, I, I don't believe that appropriating um, modern culture and even some references to pop culture uh, is is wrong as long as it's very apparent to the listener that you're not being sucked in and caving to to that culture. Um, and so it's it's a fine line to walk. And I suppose that's why I Clement is is so interesting because uh, he very much so is a is a man of his time, but he's not being sucked into um, to 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 the to, to the culture. And so Anyways, it's, it's hard to say what would Clement do. <laughs> um, WWCD, right? Um, it's, it's hard to know that, and it's hard to say that, um, but that's, that's why we're here. Right? All righty, well, we will... <laughs>